This is Draco Malfoy and the Wheel of Hecate, part four of the Mirror of Isidaru series by Star Bridget. Chapter 11. Amortentia. Draco had feared things would be weird with Potter after his failed attempt to ask him to the dance, but things seemed to slide quickly to normalcy after that. Potter was acting no differently, so it must just have been a casual attempt to ask him as a friend to avoid having to go with someone for real. He hadn't exactly gotten the feeling Pavati Patil was a love match for him the last time. Draco'd had better chemistry back then with Pansy. Pansy, for her part, rallied admirably by securing Blaze as her date. He was genuinely proud of her, unless it had been an attempt to make Draco jealous, or, for that matter, the Greengrass sisters, neither of whom Draco saw speak a word to Pansy until after the ball was over. The Slytherins in Draco's year, in fact, seemed to sort out their Yule Ball situation with a relative lack of drama. Maybe because more of the Slytherins were noble purebloods used to these kinds of formal events. They all arranged themselves by the 13th, leaving weeks before the Yule Ball. Draco with no one, a predictably unenthused Theo with Daphne, a surprisingly enthused Blaze with Pansy, and then a rather torpid Vince with Millie and Greg with Tracy. The Gryffindors, though, the Gryffindors could only be described as a shit show, even with Draco's intervention as a neutral third party to help. When not one but two people asked Draco out on Saturday, he figured that was his cue to get himself moving, not to secure a date, but to be sure his friends were adequately provided for. Not Ron and Potter. If they didn't seem inclined towards the Patil twins, he could try and give them a push. But otherwise, the bad experience they both seemed to have had last time would be salutary. He couldn't, in his right conscience, deprive them of that chance at character building. No, paternalistic as it was, it was his female friends he had to sort out. Hermione first, whether Crom would be again allowed to take her, and then Luna, whether she would go. As he could recall, he hadn't seen her at the Yule Ball, but she'd seemed to enjoy the Malfoy Gala so much he would have to find someone, if not worthy of his cousin, at least who he felt comfortable trusting with her. Hermione was the first item on the list. Maybe given the way things had ended up in the Blue Loop, he should be pushing Ron towards her. But instead he sent a message to Crom to meet him at the pitch half past midnight for flying that night. Crumb seemed unperturbed by the hour and eager to get into the air. But as soon as they stepped into the broom shed, Draco pushed his body between Crumb and the brooms. So, why do you think there's no Ron tonight? Crumb blinked. Because it is too late. No, I didn't ask him, Draco said, and hoped the late hour would keep Ron from catching wind and getting bitter but he didn't like the way Crumb visibly relaxed at the news. Stop looking so relieved. Ron's going to get over his hero worship thing for you and be more fun to be around. He's still not very good at Quidditch, Crumb said flatly. Wow, Victor, thanks. Great way to start this out. And endear yourself to me, Draco sniped feeling a defensiveness that was rather witch from the erstwhile author of Weasley is Our King. 
No, put your broom away. We're staying in here where it's warm, Fotchelo, till we're done with our little talk. And then we can go out and fly if you still want to. Or I still do, might not, after. Crumb seemed to be drawing some invisible armour around himself there in the shed's close dim light. I have been afraid of this, he said and drew his wand. You might best me, Draco Malfoy, but you will not best me easily. Hey, what the hell? Draco yelled, jumping back. Put that thing away. I'm not here to attack you like what Karkaroff must be putting in your ear. I'm just here to talk about the ball. Crumb winced, his broad, heavy-browed face contorting in discomfort. Um, well, Draco, this is very flattering, and you are a very interesting person. But I already have some fun I want to ask. Draco chose to breeze past Crumb's mistake. He wasn't insulted by it. If anything, it was rather entertaining to be considered some kind of predatory homosexual. Exactly. That's what I'm here about. Hermione. Crumb leaped back and hit his elbows hard against some school brooms. He didn't seem to feel the blow at all in the wake of Draco's verbal one. What? But how did you know? Do you really think you're subtle? Draco said impatient. Don't worry. I haven't heard anyone else figure it out, least of all her. And I haven't said anything until now. For whatever reason, Crumb seemed to think this the time to draw his wand again. Yes, I admit it. I, um, admire your friend very much. No, not my friend. My best friend, Draco said, letting his tone and gaze darken, and Crumb's hand almost seemed to shake where he held out his thick wand between them. Do you know what that means, Victor Crumb? He lingered over the syllables of Crumb's full names in the manner of Severus, as if all kinds of vicious intimations could be read into that pronunciation. Are you trying to warn me to stay away from her? Crumb asked warily. But you are not liking girls, Nine. So is it that you think me too old, too famous, too foreign, believe me? I have thought all of these things myself, but I cannot change it. She is the only girl in this school that interests me. He seemed disturbingly ready to unburden himself of his emotions, to a boy he still didn't trust enough to lower his wand. I did not mean to like her this much. I noticed her because she is always with Harry Potter, my rival, and Karkaroff told me to watch Harry Potter and what he was doing, and somehow I came to be watching Hermione instead. He hung his head in shame. I'm not saying you can't ask her, Victor, Draco said with a shrug. I'm no chauvinist. It's her decision who she takes, not mine. But it's my decision how to punish anyone who steps out of line with the most important person in the world to me. Are you catching my meaning? You are saying that I must be a gentleman, Crumb said, and then scowled indignantly. Of course I would not be uncouth towards Hermione. She is a lady. She is a strong, passionate person I respect. 
I want to get to know her better. Talk to her, that is all. At the same table for once. Okay, Draco said, and made the decision he had anticipated making. You have my blessing then, Crom, but two things. One, you should get a move on and ask her quickly, and do it with all the romance and ceremony she deserves, because you are absolutely getting the best girl, in every single sense possible in our wizarding generation. And two, if I find out, you so much as mildly displeased her, so much as looked at her funny, let alone treated her badly or made her cry. I would become your enemy, Crumb said grimly, and I have heard what you do to your enemies. I understand. I could not be cruel to Hermione even if I wanted. I promise you. And then Draco let him at the brooms and they went out for a very late December flight. Thanks to Draco's intervention, Crumb asked Hermione out just like in the Blue Loop, if maybe a bit earlier. Draco got to be there to witness the whole glorious awkwardness of it, though he had no reason to think Hermione would say no, but she would have no idea this was coming. As Draco had arranged with Crumb, Draco didn't go to the library first thing on Monday afternoon or at least as far as Crumb knew. He wished he had an invisibility cloak as he ran the promised interference, keeping an eye out to make sure none of their friends happened upon them, then went over and hid behind some shelves to listen. Crumb had taken Hermione over to the much-ransacked section on dragons. Hello, my name is Victor Crumb. OK, Draco had heard more promising openings. I know who you are. Miney's voice said, coming out unintimidated against a boy four years older, rich, famous, handsome, pure-blooded, and with the world at his feet. But that was why Hermione was Draco's anchor. So much more than anyone else, even a Victor Crumb. She knew exactly who she was. I'm Hermione Granger. How can I help you, Victor? Hermione, Crumb said, and Draco pumped his fist. All those many times spent going over and over that pronunciation had borne fruit. Hermione, we are not much acquainted, but I have often seen you in the library with your friends. Well, yes, you sit nearby, Hermione said, and clearly had no idea what was coming, or else he hoped she wouldn't have launched into her ensuing tirade. And to be honest, I know it's not your fault, Victor, but it does make it rather hard to study. All the attention you attract, all the giggling girls and that. I am sorry, Crumb said, and when Draco pushed his face through the crack between two encyclopedias, he could see the big boy visibly deflating. I am coming every day to the library to see you. I have been coming up to the library every day to try and talk to you, but I have not had the courage. To talk about what? Hermione breathed, hand going to her chest. She was leaning back against the bookshelf, other hand toying nervously with the charms on her bracelet. Me? What do you mean? You mean about my friend Harry Potter? No, I do not want to ask Harry Potter to the Yule Ball, Crumb said. I want to ask Hermione Granger. And okay, anyone who said Quidditch stars were smooth with the ladies 
needed to be introduced to Victor Crumb. Oh, but I'm Hermione Granger, she said, and only seemed to connect the dots after a second. The idea of a Quidditch star and Triwizard Champion choosing her must seem that far out of the realm of possibility to her. You're asking me? Draco willed her not to ask why, to cut herself down. He wanted her to know how much she was worth, which was everything. Crom would be the lucky one, and Draco would make damn sure to make her know that. Yes, Crum said, and looked down bashfully, his massive frame seeming to contract in shyness. I know we are not very acquainted, but I think you are a very smart and very lovely girl, and I would like to take you very much, please. Draco nearly burst out laughing at that, but at least Hermione didn't. Her hands had gone to her mouth, but not to cover giggles. Her face was red, and for that moment, she had gone from her usual bossy, infinitely capable young menace to the flustered young giddiness of someone being chosen as special for the very first time. Draco was the only one who could spoil this for her, as his presence drew attention. Hello, Draco, Luna began, and Draco quickly cast a muffliato. Crumb and Hermione didn't seem to have noticed, but his heart was still pounding as he gestured towards the crack between the books. Who are we spying on? she asked brightly, and clasped both of her hands over her mouth when she saw it was Crumb and Hermione, and heard what Hermione said. Well, yes, all right then, I'll, um, go to the ball with you if, if you'd like. Hermione said very stiffly. She reached out and actually shook Crumb's hand before walking back over to her library table and burying her face behind the largest book Draco had ever seen on blast-ended scroots. Luna and Draco were the unfortunate witnesses to Crumb's celebration as he punched the air twice and then did some kind of excited hand-flapping and jumping about in a circle. Oh, my, how fascinating, said Luna. Do all boys do that after they've successfully asked someone to a ball? Draco remembered his own reaction at asking Pansy and getting a yes. Of course she said yes, had been as far as he'd thought about it. I am a Malfoy. Not in my experience. Finding a ball date then was off Hermione's list of difficulties, although getting her outfit for it ready posed its own set of problems. Draco offered his assistance, or rather his money, but she said she had it all covered and in truth he trusted her. He remembered not recognising the smooth-haired, elegant Granger last time, but just to be sure, he made her promise to show him her intended look in advance, full out for his approval. You're going to be in front of the whole school for the champion's first dance, Draco said. You're not just representing yourself, you're representing me as your best friend. I expect to turn out accordingly. She also had reason to complain of Ron and Potter's laziness when it came to schoolwork and studying, figuring out the golden egg, and finding themselves ball dates. At least Potter had made an effort to secure one, albeit only as a friend. But Ron did no such thing at least until Draco had the misfortune to experience the worst second-hand embarrassment of his entire existence. 
Draco was going down from the library to the dungeons before dinner and found himself passing through the entrance hall at exactly the wrong time for his own mental health. The entrance hall was only slightly less impressively decked out than the Great Hall, with its twelve trees decked to the nines and everlasting icicles. There was a winter wonderland dominating the path to the steps, with more everlasting icicles hung overhead all about, and an enchanted silver mist like snow hovering in the air everywhere. Blue and white fairy lights came on every afternoon a bit before dinner. Maybe it was that added bit of winter romance in the air that spurred Ron Weasley on to the most misguided piece of Gryffindor bravery on record. Fleur de la Cour was at the epicentre of one of the lovely bursts of snowy silvery mist, highlighting her Vila heritage to full effect in her powder blue Bourbaton robes, and even Cedric Diggory seemed to fade in magnetism beside her. Ron was coming inside with Neville, Seamus and Dean, but he stopped dead at that arresting sight. Draco called out a hello as he passed. When Ron didn't answer, Draco turned back around and nearly had a heart attack at the sight before him. Ron, striding up to Delacour, with the same queasy determination on his face as he faced his potions finals each year. Except in this examination, Draco could do nothing to help him. Fleur? Ron blurted out, and Draco began walking over as rapidly as he could, but it was too late. Fleur, do you want to go to the ball with me? Delacour didn't even respond, just turned from Cedric, eyes narrowing, and eyed Ron up and down like a horse, who had risen on its hind legs and tried to invite her to tea in its stall. Her gaze was blank enough that she clearly didn't recognise him, despite him being best friends with another champion and despite her status as his eventual sister-in-law. The entire entrance hall had heard Ron. So loudly had he bellowed out the words like a challenge to a duel. A low tittering went around as Delacour just stood there, and Ron's face went from foolhardy bravado to frozen horror. Then Ron turned to flee. Draco put a hand on his shoulder, an anger rising in him that he never had thought he would feel watching the humiliation of Ron Weasley. C'est type vous et poser une question, Draco said loudly, and forced himself to stick, despite his agitation, to the polite third-person formal you. Allez-vous répondre, Mademoiselle Delacour? Delacour's gaze went from bewildered and squeamish to defensive. Je le connais pas. Mais vous me connaissez, Mademoiselle, non? C'est Ron Weasley et c'est mon ami, Draco said, pushing his voice into the most courtly refinement there could be, the poshest pronunciation of his French. Mon ami, Ron Weasley, méritait une réponse à cet égard aujourd'hui. Delacour's face turned petulant, but somewhat cowed. Je vais déjà avec Roger Davies. Alors, c'était si compliqué? Draco asked with exquisite sarcasm. Dis-lui que vous êtes engagé d'autres obligations. Remerciez-les de les prospères et dire au revoir. Delacour struggled to compose herself for a moment. Like Severus said, Draco was certainly making friends this year. Bonsoir, Ronald, she finally said in her most polite manner. I am 
very honor to be asked, but I have a date already. I am sorry, best wishes, and au revoir. Draco nodded, pulled Ron away, and turned as he left to give her a toothy sort of smile. He could see Cedric Diggory staring after him with more dislike than ever on that handsome face. But hey, maybe beautiful people like him and Delacour needed to be taught a lesson or two. Ginny came over and began to laugh, poking at Ron and giggling, and insisted he tell the whole story to Potter once he arrived. Draco sat at Gryffindor for once, in an attempt to console Ron, feeling genuinely awful for him despite what his limited intervention had accomplished. In response to the question whether he'd asked anyone, Potter glanced quickly at Draco, then muttered something non-committal. So, you don't have anyone to go with either? Ron said glumly. This is mad, we're the only ones left who haven't got anyone, well, except Neville. Um, actually, Draco, Neville said. That reminds me, can I talk to you about something? Oh, Neville, I thought you'd never ask. Draco drawled, giving him a half-lidded look up through his eyelashes. The Weasleys nearby descended into hysterics, while Potter just stared more heavily at his own hands. Neville had to really want to talk to him to follow him to the Slytherin table even this far before dinner. Somehow, though, Draco wasn't sharp enough to guess what he was about until he blurted, Uh, Draco, do you think it would be all right if I asked your cousin Luna to the ball? Draco considered, thinking not just about how fit Neville was going to get, and all the basilisk slaying in the future, but also how universally kind Neville had always been, to himself and others. He had only ever wounded Draco through avoidance, and that had been born of fear, and apparently he wasn't scared of Luna. Do you like her, then? Is that what this is about? Or have you just already run through all the girls in your year, and she's the only option left that you know? I... I think she's really cool, Neville said, and looked like he wished he had some sort of weapon, like the Sword of Gryffindor, to place between himself and the fearsome Draco Malfoy. You don't need my permission, Draco sighed, though I can't promise you success, and as long as you don't act like a jerk or do anything awful to her, you don't have to worry about any of my retaliation either. Okay, good, I really don't want to, um, force your retaliation, said Neville and fled. Draco actually expected Neville to be successful, if only because any fourth year was Luna's ticket to the ball. He was nonplussed to find Neville arriving at the library the next morning, glumly telling Ron that he could wear his dress robes to the Yule Ball if his own were really so bad, because Neville wouldn't have anyone to go with anyway. Luna said no, Draco asked, and got a crushed sort of nod that showed how much Neville must have been hoping she would say yes. Maybe an actual crush there. Luna could do worse. There wasn't a mean bone in Neville's body. Just ask Ginny, Draco said, and ignored the sputtering gasp that drew out of Ron. Luna hadn't been at breakfast which she had just attributed to her sleeping in on the weekend now that term was officially over, but she wasn't at lunch or dinner, so Draco abandoned his fellow Slytherins and went down to the kitchens, 
She wasn't there either. But Dobby told him that Luna had stopped by at midday and gotten Dobby to give her a colossal quantity of food in a basket, as if preparing to hibernate for the winter. How did she seem? he asked Dobby. Dobby confined himself to describing Luna's swollen eyes and the moderate but worrying description of Luna Lovegood was not her usual self. So Draco had officially fucked up by giving Neville the green light to ask out Luna. He didn't think Neville would have been at all aggressive or nasty at taking the rejection. So he had to assume it was something else about the asking, or the your ball, or something he didn't know about. But it was maddening not to know. Ever since he'd found Luna, alabaster white and cold in the Chamber of Secrets, thanks to his alterations of the blue line, he had felt responsible for her, in a way that made his skin crawl when he didn't have any idea where she was. He was shameless enough to go over to Gryffindor and commandeer Potter in the middle of dinner. Ron asked crankily if it couldn't wait until after dinner, and Draco said no, it couldn't. Miney asked what it was about. Draco couldn't exactly yell out Potter's secrets, and he didn't want to admit something that Luna was the only one involved in front of so many listening ears. So he just said, It's just about who's going with who to the Yule Ball. After that, Potter proved surprisingly willing to drop something, even his fully piled plate for Draco's summons, following him around the corner with a smile dawning on his face. Maybe he could guess which couple was in need of help. Okay, I need the Marauder's map for Luna, Draco blurted, and he had never seen anyone's face fall apart so quickly or completely. What? That's why you had to talk to me, Potter asked plaintively, staring at Draco like he was a horrible person. It was a look he gave surprisingly infrequently to Draco in the red line. It made Draco especially uncomfortable right now, without knowing why. Yeah, it's the bloody Yule Ball, like I said. Neville asked Luna to the Yule Ball, and I think it's upset her somehow, because she hasn't been at meals and I haven't seen her around all day. What did you think I needed, Potter? Nothing, Potter said quickly and dug around in his bag. He happened to have it on him and handed it over. Just... Give it back when you have the chance. Thanks, Potter, Draco tapped the parchment. I solemnly swear I am up to no good. He searched the map and found Luna Lovegood, a small solitary dot out by the lake. When he looked up, Potter was still right there looking at him. Draco couldn't figure out why. Potter took a deep breath, like he was about to say something but didn't. Luna's at the lake, Draco said, and gave him another weak smile as he brushed past him on his way to his cousin. Once he knew her rough location, he could find her with ease even without the marauder's map, just by the glow of her hair. She was in the spot they always sat out here, the same place where Dobby had found the tower in Potter's cup. Luna's presence was so large and at times otherworldly, it was easy to miss how small and young she really was but he felt it now in the dusk, with Luna just as undefended as he from the December wind. It hadn't snowed yet, but the impending promise of snow could be felt in the air. Draco hastened his step to cast a warming spell on her. He whispered it under his breath, but she still said, without turning, Hello, 
Draco. How did you know it was me? Draco said, taking off his cloak to drape it around her shoulders and casting a warming charm on himself and then the ground before sitting beside her. Oh, Luna said, there's a feel to your magic different from anyone else's. Her gaze didn't shift from the long, dark prospect of the lake before them. More powerful? Draco asked, trying to be funny, but Luna didn't laugh. Darker, she said absently, and pulled his cloak tighter around herself as the wind blew the winter air right in their faces. And no, Draco, I don't want to go inside. I can give back your cloak. That's okay, Draco lied. I'm not cold at all. I just wanted. He didn't know how to approach this. With an air about her so remote and alien, it chilled Draco worse than the wind. I don't mean to be all overprotective, cousin man, but you weren't at any meals, and Dobby said. I ate earlier, Luna said, pulling her knees up tight to her chest and rested her chin on them to stare out at the lake. Her very long hair at least gave her some form of windshield. She pulled Draco's cloak all about her as another shield, though with how long she could have been sitting out here, he didn't know how much it would help. Don't worry, Draco. We've just been thinking. In Draco's own experience, at least, that was not a great sign. Wanna tell me about it? Draco feared Luna would do something she never had and send him summarily from her side, but this was Luna. Either she felt some burden of debt towards him after the Chamber of Secrets, or she was as incapable of unkindness as Neville. Luna just looked at him for the first time, considering, and then said, I think you'd understand. Draco's heart was pierced by the sight of her tears, because, come to think of it, he'd never actually seen her cry before. Her face had already been swollen from crying before, like Dobby had said, and now more tears were flowing. At least it was not quite cold enough for them to freeze there on her little face. I won't say anything about it at all if you don't want, Draco offered, and lifted his arm offering it as shelter. She snuggled beneath it, and Draco wrapped it there tightly. The wind seemed slightly more bearable if they were sharing warmth. They both looked back out at the lake instead of each other. I won't try to tell you what to do, or give advice, unless you ask for it. I won't act like I know better, I promise. I'll just listen, that's all. She pulled her hair as a tighter curtain around her face and said without expression in her voice, I've been having more dreams about Tom. Luna was so good at acting like her first year hadn't affected her. So good at making a joke or a non-issue about what she had experienced with Riddle's diary that it hadn't even occurred to Draco as a potential stumbling block for anything romantic. The memory cut through Draco and then made him feel like the worst cousin in history. What kind of dreams? Not good ones, Luna said without any attempt to hide her tears. When Draco stole a glance at her, he could see her tears darkening his robe where it was pulled over her knees. Memories mostly, I suppose. Not of things that happened, mostly just things that Tom and I talked about. 
things he promised. We tried to joke about it, but I really was in love with him, I think, back then. I just had no one else. No one. It was a fight not to say anything, but he owed it to her to listen the just the way he had promised. He tightened his hold on her shoulders. She moved her face back from where she had been burying it in her own knees and buried it in his shoulder instead. This close, he could hear the facade of eerie stoic calm was not complete as she sniffled every now and then between words, if only from the cold. Neville asked me to the Yule Ball last night. I didn't think anyone would, though I would have liked to go. I enjoyed the Christmas gala last year with you, even if you were blinded by a curse, and we did end up in the dungeons. Draco snorted in surprised laughter, and he caught a flash of her silvery blue eyes smiling up at him before she pressed her face to his shoulder again. I wanted to say yes to Neville, she mumbled against his shoulder, and not just to go to the ball. He's a very nice boy. He's cute and he's always been so kind. I thought we would have a good time and I wanted to make him happy, but I just couldn't say yes. I couldn't and I didn't know why, so I ran. And when I got to the lake last night, I, I saw Tom in the water. Draco made a sound of alarm. Not really, Draco. I know he's dead. The diary's destroyed, but when I looked down at my reflection on the water... He was there behind me in my ear, whispering promises. She let out a harsh, stifled sob. I was so scared, Draco. I don't know why I got so scared, but when I think of dancing with a boy, any boy, Tom said we would go dancing together. Go to balls, he told me about the heart of Winter Gala at Malfoy Manor and said he would have taken me there if we were born in the same time. No, Draco, don't give me that face. Don't say you're sorry. You couldn't have known when you invited me, and I didn't think of him the entire time. I was glad to go with someone else and get those pictures of Tom out of my head. But you're the only boy I can trust. And I thought of dancing with Neville being as dead, having him touch me. I couldn't. Luna, Draco said forcefully, you didn't have to. You don't have to let any other boy ever touch you, your whole life, or any girl either, unless you want to. If people tell you that's not normal, then they're the sick, fucked-up ones. He was breaking his own rule, but he couldn't not say it. I did want to, though, Luna said bleakly, and rubbed her face onto his shoulder, nuzzling it with all the tears coming off on his shirt. I think I could like Neville. Neville, if no one else, he's so good. If I can't feel comfortable even thinking of Neville, how will I ever with anyone? I I used to want that so much growing up to fall in love, and then I did. She began to sob unrestrained, and Draco had never felt so guilty in his life, not even when he thought his intervention had earned Sirius the Dementor's kiss. Because if he'd left it alone, this would have been Ginny Weasley and not her. And Ginny back then wouldn't have been half so alone. Not just a little girl with an ancient monster. Two ancient monsters. I've never told anyone about this, she said with a sob. Please don't tell anyone. 
I used to write about all the things I would do if he was real. You know, if he had a body. Corporeal? Draco supplied an alien, she nodded. If he was corporeal, she gasped. I would talk all the time about wanting to hold his hand or hug him, just because I missed my father so much and no one touched me back then. No one talked to me or even looked at me more than they had to, except to laugh at me. And I wanted to make friends so badly, like father told me to, but I didn't know how. And each time I was sad and said I needed a hug, Tom wrote that he was hugging me. And I don't know why. I started writing I wanted to kiss him. I would say that to him all the time. He said I was way too young, even once I turned 12. But that when I got to be 15 like him, he would show me things. He promised. I heard girls in my dorm talking about sex. How it worked. And I told him I wanted him to teach me. Draco felt like he was going to be sick. At least she said Riddle hadn't played into it too much. But even how much he had made Draco want to find whatever remained of that diary and bring it back to life to kill it again. Luna, that's normal when you're in love, even if you're super young. If you like someone a lot, you'll get curious, even if you don't know what it means. I did so, Luna said with a deep shuddering breath and hid her face in her own hands, before breathing out what sounded her most shameful secret. The girls in Ravenclaw, what I would hear them say, and I still think about him like that, I still dream. I can't help but think of him like that, he's still in my head, all the time, it's so wrong, I feel like dirt, Draco. And I never wanted anyone to know, not you. You've been so kind, you've given me friends, you've let me pretend to be your cousin when I'm this ruined thing. When I know I'm silly to be any good anymore. I'll never be any good, ever again. Luna! Draco shouted, pulling her hands off her face. Don't you dare. Don't you dare say you're solid or ruined. You're not. I know how that feels, all right. I know how it feels to have so much dark in your past. You feel like you're neck deep in filth and no one would ever want to touch the face they see if they knew what everything below it is caught in. I know how it is to feel your skin is like poison and other people must be blind not to see it. Like the things you believed in turned you into something irredeemable. I know how it feels to think you're too ruined to be any good for anyone else anymore. But that's not you, Luna. You're so sweet. You're so smart. You are good. You're so good. You're the least solid person I've ever met. Please, Luna. Draco, she said curiously, touching his face. Draco, why are you crying too? I should have saved you sooner, Draco gasped, hugging her as tightly as he could. She wrapped her own arms around him, distant devastation at last giving way to, of all things, her own need to comfort him. I can't stand it if you think that, Luna, I can't stand it. 
I know you might feel it, but don't think it, not without telling your own head you're wrong. Do you do that, Draco? Luna asked with a shuddering laugh. Do you tell your mind it's wrong when you think awful things about yourself? <laughs> no. Draco laughed unsteadily. No, I don't. I know I'm a hypocrite, but... Luna, if you want me to, I'll try. If you say you will. He could have come to life as a person and done anything to you, and I still wouldn't call you dirty. Whatever he is, he didn't taint you. Didn't change you. Not you. You're the kind of person who could climb down into hell and back out and still not have your brightness dimmed. Your light. I know it would be the same, because you've been like an angel to me, Luna. An angel. Need you more than you need me. You know that, don't you? You could spend a year in hell. Fuck, I guess you did. You could spend a year in hell and still be no less an angel. And finally exhausted, he fell silent. And they sat that way for a while, together. Draco, Luna, a voice behind them asked. Draco cast the Lumos to see them. Then they looked up, wiping his eyes to see Harry Potter standing above them like another angel, in a dark, puffy coat, with two more dark, puffy coats in his arms. I'm sorry to interrupt, I just... You never came inside, and I thought if you were going to stay out like this all night, you'd need a jacket. Give it, Draco said, and took the smaller-looking coat and demanded Luna hold out her arms. She put her arms in the sleeves and then let Draco put the coat on her. It was shabby enough that even if he hadn't seen Ron wear it, he would have known it was a Weasley's. He snapped all the clasps to close it and took a scarf from Potter to wrap around her neck before holding up his arms for another coat. Potter handed it down and Draco had the same relief as Luna, even if it managed he'd had to once again expose his face to Potter. Thank you, Potter wasn't until Potter had left them alone, taking his map back with him, and Draco sat with Luna a little longer before heading in, that he realised the map had been with Draco until then. So to know they were still out, and where they were, Potter had to have stayed in the entrance hall or great hall and waited all that time, before their lack of return had made him go up to Gryffindor and get them scarves and coats. Draco was in one of Potter's extra coats, He'd have to give that back, but he decided he'd keep the Gryffindor scarf which had been in the coat pocket, so he knew it was Potter's, and anyway, it smelled like him. He'd put it with the Gryffindor tie he'd stolen from Potter last year, and tell Potter the scarf was just lost. If he wanted, he'd buy him another one. Oh, and Luna, Draco suddenly remembered to say as they parted ways. I'm not pretending to be your cousin. You proved we were on that family tree, remember? Just because it's not first cousins or something, it doesn't mean we're not still cousins. So don't ever say that again, you'll hurt my feelings. And in case you haven't noticed, I'm a very sensitive person. Okay, Draco, Luna laughed, and gave him a shaky but real half-smile before she left him. Draco was left drained himself over the next day, though he still made sure to make an appearance at their library table, hugging Luna every time he saw her. He found it hard to focus that night at extra potions with Severus, 
but at least he had some very interesting potions to distract him. The problem was what that distraction ended up teaching him. I have prepared a number of potions, Severus intoned, that are considered standard for a mute level student to be able to complete. When you have brewed every one of these potions to an excellent quality, then I will consider you competent. Now identify them. I will not tell you what they are, even if you are stumped. We can stay here all night if need be. Ah, Severus's warm and fuzzy teaching style. Who could beat it? Draco stooped over the first cauldron and felt the same mix of thrill and trepidation this potion always gave him. Veritaserum, he blurted. This he had actually brewed before. In the summer after Dumbledore's murder, the Death Eaters had set Draco to filling their stores of it, with Severus far too busy and important to do it. He had failed at it so many times in a row back then, he'd thought they would call Severus in to do it instead. But Aunt Bella had just taken it upon herself to personally punish each failure and it hadn't taken many more tries to get it right. Veritaserum, Draco repeated, and gestured to the muddy one beside it, and said, Polyjuice potion, with ease. This was made even easier by the similarity to a presentation Slughorn had given at the start of sixth year. It made unfortunate sense for Severus to judge Draco to be at the potions level of a sixth year, he had been rather distracted in potions from the start of sixth year onwards. And this? Severus asked, gesturing to a high bubbling dark gold potion. Draco's face soured as he remembered how hard he had tried to win it at the start of sixth year, to help with his mission for Voldemort, and how Potter of all people had been the one to win instead. Felix Felicis, Draco said managing to keep the annoyance off his face. And the last, Severus said, not looking impressed by Draco's feet so far. Draco approached the cauldron with its lighter, pearly gold contents, set apart from the others because of its strong smell, and finally let the whiff of Amortentia hit his nose. He remembered it smelled differently based on what attracted you. He could smell a confusing array of aromas, with broomsticks, fresh-cut grass, sweat, a cheap-smelling muggle shampoo, and a sharpness of powerful magic palpable in the air, so strong it was not just a feeling there, but a scent. The smell of Harry Potter, he realised, and wasn't even that surprised. It was just like seeing Potter in the mirror of Erised. What was surprising was that when he searched his memories of sixth year, he found that even back in the blue loop, Amortentia had smelled exactly the same. As if none of this suffering was new. As if he had always been in love with Potter. Draco staggered back from the cauldron covering his nose and putting as much distance between himself and it as he could. Severus cleared his throat, so Draco answered, Amortentia, he said, it's Amortentia, and stopped being able to breathe. Severus could recognise one of Draco's panic attacks easily by now, and administered a draught of peace at once with Valerian root tea not long in following. 
he sat with Draco in that classroom for an hour, far from the scent of Amortentia, and said little, his face unmistakably guilty, but he had done nothing wrong. No one should be that broken by the realisation of what they had always wanted. If Draco had seen the mirror of Erised in the Blue Line's first year, he probably would have seen Potter in it back then as well. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Draco Malfoy and the Wheel of Hecate, part four of the Mirror of Isidiru series by Star Bridget.